All right, we're in James chapter 4 today. You say, didn't you land at James chapter 2 when you last left us? Verse 30, that's a true statement. Let me tell you why we're uh, jumping ahead today. A couple of kind of practical realities. Uh, Number one, I I coach the coaches at Masters. Our hope is to have an athletic department that really is Christian athletics. And uh, the mission of the Masters University as it relates to athletics is to train up men and women who will be God glorifiers, gospel ambassadors, and kingdom influencers. That's why you do athletics. You don't do athletics just to play, although it is okay to play and have fun and to compete, and anybody who's done that knows there is a benefit a reward to that. But athletics is a culture, a, uh, a context where you can learn about life. It's a microcosm of the macro of life. Stuff happens in athletics that happens in life. Disappointments, setbacks, um, challenges, opportunities, bad calls disappointments, victories, losses, challenges to self and personal identity. Everything you can think of, in my view, that relates to life and living as a Christian happens in a condensed zone called athletics. And at the university, one of the uh, convictions we share, and this is very unusual. Matter of fact, I don't know anywhere else that this would be true. Where every coach signs up for and gives allegiance to the master's way. And the master's way is to prepare, to practice, to play, to coach as an act of worship. Because that's what Christians do. We live a life of worship, not just here on Sunday when you open your Bible or sing hymns of praise and offer gifts and offerings to the Lord. You worship as a daily offering to the Lord. That's Romans chapter 12. I'm to present myself today, this day, and whatever I'm doing, a living sacrifice, which is an acceptable, reasonable service. And the word service is a liturgical word, which means it's an act of worship. It's reasonable. Athletics is a context where you offer worship offerings by how you play, what you say, to whom you do it, for whom you do it. The dependence you have on the Lord as you do it. Motivators. That's worship in the zone of athletics. In this past uh, couple of weeks, I've been talking on the subject of humility. In the acrostic of worship, W-O-R-S-H-I-P, W is work. You demand the best of yourself and your teammates. The O is others. I'm playing for my team, not myself, ours, responsibility. I have a role, I own it, and I own it when I fail. The S, which is the heart of worship, is selfless, which is I sacrifice and serve out of love, my team and my teammates at my expense. H is humility. If you're going to present anything to the it's an act of what has to be saturated with, fragrant with humility. I is integrity, honor on and off the field, honor on and off the campus, and the P is passion. I am an entrusted steward of a gift from God, and I'm going to render it all in, all out, all all I've got. I'm playing as a worshiper. I'm competing as a worshiper. So I just talked about humility. We're working our way through that. 
I've been emphasizing humility at our campus. Uh, Compelling Christianity involves what I'm calling fragrant humility. Let me give you a bottom line definition on humility. You first Christianity. You first. There's an absence of humility in our culture, and frankly, there's an absence of humility among Christians. James, as you know, as we've studied together, is a declaration of what real Christians think and live like. Early book, 50-ish A.D., church newly planted, Christians dispersed by persecution, new Christians, Hebrew Christians, into the Roman Empire, and the senior leader of the new church, at least at Jerusalem, James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, clearly has heard reports about a kind of Christianity that isn't. A kind of professed faith isn't validated faith, and so he writes this little letter of 108 verses with 60 imperatives, which are things you need to do or to stop doing. Imperative means you don't have an option. I'm not offering you an option. Real Christians who live real faith live this way. They think this way. They have convictions that are manifest in this way, or that claim of faith is invalid because Christianity is more than the profession of my mouth. It's the demonstration of my life. And if there's anything our culture needs more today than ever is a kind of Christianity that's both compelling and real. Because if people cannot see the validated presence and reality of Jesus Christ in your life, there's no reason for them to consider the claims of the gospel or the God who came to save. So humility is cardinal to Christianity, and I want to talk about it. I'm old, and I lose brain cells every day. It's fresh on my mind, and since it's in the book of James, I want to teach it. So James chapter 4, we're going to read 10 verses, we're going to isolate one, and then I'm going to unpack a lot of verses beginning this Sunday that is meant to help you humble yourself. Because real Christians, let me give you the big idea, real Christians humble themselves. Let me give you the second big statement before we read the Bible. Humility is a choice you make. It is not a gift you receive. Humility is a choice you make. It is not a gift you receive. In other words, it's a, an act of your will, not something God does as a fruit of His Spirit. Humility is a choice you make, not a gift you receive. And humility is critical to Christianity. It's what real Christians do. It is at the core of the motivating panoply of priorities that energize a Christian. Love for God is one of those energizing realities. Humility is a critical aspect of a Christian's life. So, with that little bit, let's begin. James 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder, and you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now here's a key verse. You adulteresses. 
you unfaithful people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you think the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. Here's our key thought. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Key verse for today, verse 10, humble yourself. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, which is to say, as an act of worship. And He will exalt you. Real Christians with genuine faith are faithful friends of God. They are not fickle friends of the world. And they therefore enjoy, because of God's sufficient grace, His greater grace, they enjoy promotion and blessing which comes from God. Why? Because they receive and rely on the gifts of God's grace promised to those who humbly rely on Him and are faithful to Him in friendship and willing obedience. So I'm giving you the big ideas of the paragraph. I'm not going to unpack all of this because we're coming back to chapter 4, days ahead, Lord willing. But the context of the verse in question, humble yourself, given by this reality, God exhorts His people through James, the pastor of the church at Jerusalem, to be friends of God and not friends of the world faithfully reliant on gifts because you ask Him, not prideful manipulations and demanding intentions because you require it of people, these things you want. And God is a jealous God, jealous in the good way. We use jealous almost always in way because almost always it's negative. I want what you have. This is zeal for what is mine. You belong to me. He strongly desires the spirit that he has placed within you. God wants a passionate, intimate, faithful friendship, intimate relationship with you, and that is not to be shared with the affections of the world or the things of the world. You belong to God, just like my wife can say, Harry, you belong to me. Or I can say of her, you belong to me. By covenant relationship, we belong to each other. By covenant relationship, Christians belong to God. And that allegiance, that affection, that desire, the provisions of life, the blessings of life are to be obtained 
in a Christ-centered, grace-dependent, faith-driven way, in a Christian way. And if that's not true, you need to know this. God exalts the humble, and He's opposed to whom? The proud. Opposed is tasso to arrange, anti. I am arranged against you. I told you we have a new puppy. He has places he wants to go and things he wants to see. He spends his life in a cage. There's an exercise pen which sits in the kitchen, so he's acclimating to the family. Drake, which is his new name. Drake doesn't get to go where Drake wants to go. And when he gets out of the exercise pen, he gets put on a leash. He lives his evenings in a kennel or a crate. It's where he sleeps. An encompassing jail cell. No freedom. Doesn't get to do what he wants to do. And periodically, when he sees something he really wants, puppy affection and infatuation, something happens to him. These big people stand in front of him and resist his interest or his desire. They frustrate him, which results in whining and moaning and barking and biting. I want to hurt you, bite, but hey, I'm really determined to get this bite. But there's these big people that oppose his interest. You feel that? That's anti-tasso. That's what God does to the proud. He stands in their way. Their immature affections, chasing things that are adversarial to true Christianity, God gets in the way. He opposes. That is a present tense verb. If you got up today with an overhigh opinion of you, if you got up today absent humility, there is an adversary opposed to your intentions today. Not because he doesn't love you. I love my little puppy. There's nothing we desire to do harmful. But we're opposed to some of his interests because they're not in concord with the design and desire of those who are giving leadership in the home. There's a God in heaven who's opposed to everyone who is proud, which is why James says, humble yourself. Because if you're friends with the world, that's an evidence of pride. It's self-satisfaction. It's me caring for me. And if I get in a in an adversarial position or a discord, divisive altercation with you because you're denying me what I demand for my life, pride energizes that frustration. Pride says, you will give it to me. I'll take what I want when I want it, and I'll do whatever it takes to get it, even if it's injurious to you. You know why? Because I'm the center of my universe. It's about self-satisfaction. And God says, I humble people like that, and I resist people like that. You know what humility ought to do? It ought to draw near to God. It ought to submit to God, and it ought to repent in anguish before God. I'd rather you and mourn over your self-centered, proud living so that I can bless and benefit you again. Humble yourself. In the presence of the Lord, where is God present? 
theological question of the day, Grace Community Church. Omnipresent, that is to say he is everywhere present at the same time. Therefore, humility is valuable wherever you are, wherever you go, because your humility, you're lowering yourself. You're choosing someone else over yourself. You choosing God above all others is an act of worship because you're always in the presence of the Lord. And you know what? He, he moves from your resistor to your elevator. He moves from opposer to your promoter. I will exalt you. That is a future active verb. That will happen. In the fullness of time and in the purposes of God, undeniably, you humble yourself. There is blessing and benefit attached to that. So this morning... I want to give you some convictions, and over the next couple of times, I'm honored to speak to you. Critical conditions and convictions that promote humility. I've called this, these thoughts, many things, but one of the things I think I like best is a highway to humility. Humble yourself. Humble yourself is an aorist aggressive verb, which means do it. Do it now. It's urgent. Don't wait till you walk out of the room. Do it now. It has the flavor because of the verb that follows of an everyday kind of urgency. It's a choice you make. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5 just as a reminder that this is not a fruit of the Spirit spiritual gift that you receive. I have to honestly say I would have assumed and probably have functioned often with the idea that if I walk with God, humility is a byproduct of the Spirit of God. It's a fruit. Something fruit is something that the Spirit of God produces. I want you to notice what is not in this list. 522, the book of Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. What did you notice absent in this verse? Humility. You know why? Because the Bible drumbeats these words, humble yourself, humble yourself. Humble yourself, because humility is not a gift you receive from the Holy Spirit. It's a choice you make through the power of the Spirit, faith in God, because of His greater grace. Matthew 18, verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Luke 14, 11, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. He who humbles himself shall be exalted. Luke 18, 14, I tell you this, one man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled. Let me just pause right there. If you don't humble yourself, somebody will humble you. That is not the promoter, that's the opposer who is committed to your sanctification. Everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, and who humbles himself shall be exalted. 
Philippians 2.8, as modeled by the model man, Jesus found an appearance as a man. He what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. James 4.10, humble yourselves. 1 Peter 5.6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. That has to do submission and trust in His power and His capacity and His sovereignty. Listen, when you frustrate yourself because you don't like circumstances that are occurring in your life, that's an expression of pride. Because the mighty hand who belongs to your, or that belongs to your father, is sovereignly ruling in the affairs of your life. There's no random anything in the life of a Christian. And not only is that hand sovereign in its rule, it's capable in its capacity both to provide grace sufficient for the difficulty as well as in his timing, relief from the difficulty. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is submit to his sovereignty and trust in his capacity. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in a proper time. You know what? There is a proper time that's governed by sovereignty and grace and God's goodness. So humility is a choice you make not a gift you receive. Humble yourself. I'm going to give you some reasons why these next two Sundays. Convictions, critical convictions that result in observed actions of a real Christian. I'm going to call it a compelling Christian. I tell my students at the university, compelling Christianity is being the kind of Christian that causes a non-Christian to consider becoming one. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, men are drawn to God. Sovereignly elect, certainly bound up in the eternal purposes of God. But people are drawn to God when they see the people of God living as children of God. Can you say amen to that? So... Let me give you some convictions to cultivate the humble yourself commitment. Number one, here's the first conviction. God hates the absence of humility. Listen, it's tough to get up in the morning and say, I'm going to humble myself unless I realize that God hates the absence of humility. He hates the presence of pride. Let me ask you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 6, a very familiar piece of biblical real estate. I just want to punctuate a couple of things for you in a passage I'm confident you know, but I want you to feel it in the context of these encouragements today, because real Christians are humble Christians. Real Christians are you-go-first Christians. Real Christians are not seeking their own ends at your expense, but at their own, they're seeking someone else's benefit. Real Christianity is humble Christianity, and real humble Christianity is attractive Christianity. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord what? Hates. Now, wouldn't you agree with me, hate's a strong word? 
It's not like I don't, he doesn't like this. It's bigger than he doesn't like this. He hates this. In the Hebrew language, certain things get put first, last, just like in the Greek language, for an emphatic emphasis. In the grocery list of things that God hates, something leads that list. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, even which are an abomination to him. Oh, by the way, abomination, does that sound like a good thing? The word abomination needs to be to detest something as so repulsive it would make you vomit. It's repulsive. I'm Harry Walls III. There was a Harry Walls I, my grandfather. We used to visit with them monthly because they suffered strokes, and my mom and our family would go up to central Pennsylvania and provide support on the weekend, as one of the families would do each weekend of the month. And uh, being a growing and hungry and thirsty boy, I was, and I loved milk. I loved milk. Whole milk, you know, the cold kind, the, the kind that's good with everything, milk. Well, I remember going to the refrigerator, and I, I, I clearly wasn't very mature and sort of well-trained, and I took the carton, I opened it, and I drank out of it. Anybody ever do that to me? You don't have to admit that. I, I did that. I took that big swallow of cold, whole milk. It wasn't whole. It was curdled. So I have this in me, and I realize it's not what I had hoped for. Anybody want to have an idea what I did with that? Swallowed it. No big deal. No, I didn't swallow it. I got rid of it. Pappy, which is what I called Harry the First, my grandfather. What is this milk is bad? He said, no, it's just getting to where I like it. That is a broken human being. (laughs) That's somebody who grew up during the Depression, right? (laughs) You're just happy to have something to drink. What I did in response to the curdled milk is what God does to this list. He spits it out. The word abominable is used for the perversions of homosexuality and bestiality in the book of Leviticus. It is no small thing to God. None of those gross sins are housed in this verse, but I'll tell you which one leads these verses. Seven which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes. Haughty is proud. It's a proud look in some of your translations. Pride in this verse means to elevate yourself, to have carry yourself with your head held high, this sense of self-worth and self-interest. Haughty eyes, proud look, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. Now that's worthy of repulsion. Killing the innocent. Somebody ought to consider that verse for abortion. Something's broken in a culture where you cannot see the distasteful, unacceptable, repulsive nature of killing the unborn. Sermon for a different day. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, someone who spreads strife among brothers. There's another punctuation. You know what that is? The last one in the list. 
God hates those things. They're an abomination to him. Haughty eyes is an abomination that's so repulsive, he will not tolerate it. He hates it. Proverbs 8.13, the fear is to hate evil. That's what wisdom says. If you don't hate evil, that's not wise. But there's some other things you hate. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth. Wisdom says, I hate that. Proverbs 16.5, again, no exceptions, no exclusions. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, the engine of the wicked is sin. Listen to Jesus, Mark 7, 21 through 23, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of covetousness, covetousness and wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride. All these evil things proceed from within and they defile the man. All of these evil things. Cornerstone, Christians are to be humble, and part of the engine of motivation for humility is the recognition of how God views what we tend to allow. He hates it. It is sin. It is gross. It is unacceptable. Pride is, here's a word for you, putrid. In the heart and the eyes of God. Let me give you a second conviction. Number two, here's a motivator, critical conviction to compel you on the highway of humility. You have no future without humility. You have no future. Your forecast is bleak. No blessing. No elevating, no future without humility. Let me validate that with some of these biblical truth statements. Proverbs 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is proud in heart. Notice everyone That's Harry and everybody else sitting in the room with Harry today. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, they will not go unpunished. Assuredly is high confidence. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before, everybody knows this verse, pride goes before what? Destruction or fall. And a haughty spirit before stumbling. Proverbs 16, 19, it is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. You know why he says that? Because if you're with the lowly, you can enjoy the humble. You can enjoy what you have. But if you're in the mansion of the proud, God's bulldozers are revving up their motors in your front yard. 
Pride results in a lack of security. Is God's character to remove the focus of our pride or remove us from our enjoyment of it? Better to live in a hut without worry than to live in a mansion and hear the sound of those big earth movers about ready to push against the world you live in and take such joy and pride in. So why is your future so bleak? Because God says, I'm going to remove the source of your pride. You can have it, but I'm opposed to it. And I'm so opposed and repulsed by it, I'm going to set my target on it. Let me call to the stage and turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 3. A group of women, we're going to start with them. This is not meant to be biased. Just ladies first. (laughs) Isaiah 3 is about the judgment of Judah that's valid. God says to his full judgment's coming. There's a reason, and I'm giving you, I'm articulating those reasons. Second chapter 3 is the reason of pride as manifest by women in the tribe of Judah. Verse 16, moreover, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are proud. Anybody confused about the issue? Should not be. Proud. As an expression of their pride, they walk with heads held high. That's the haughty look and seductivize, which is sensualize. I'm going to take care of my own satisfactions and gratifications as a consequence of my look. They go along with mincing steps and they tinkle the bangles on their feet because these are decorations. These are the, the decor of the day, the adornments of the day. Look at me stuff. All of this is designed to say, look at me. Therefore, as a consequence of that, the Lord will afflict the daughters of Zion with scabs. The Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festal robes, outward tunics, cloaks, Money, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be, here's a word for you, putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp. Instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth and branding. Instead of beauty, question mark. Why are they going to endure such loss? You know why? Because the character of God is, whatever you set your pride or the source of your pride is, I'm coming. I'm going to remove it. Turn over to, that's the women, ladies go first verse. Turn over to Daniel chapter 4. And let's talk about a guy. A famous guy. Because what I want to do is, the, you know the term immutability? Mutability is the doctrine that the God who was still is. His attributes, his character, he doesn't change. 
He's immutable. The way he was in the Old Testament, well, that's the way he is today, 2020. What he liked then, he likes now. What he disliked then, he dislikes now. What he did then, he does now. Immutable. And you have these graphic examples, and I'm just cherry-picking, frankly. We could look at a lot of different places, but I want to give you some kind of vivid, non-negotiable evidence that not only does God hate pride, He deals with it, which means you either humble yourself or He will humble you. I think it's far wiser to humble yourself. Ask the women of Judah. Or let's call Nebuchadnezzar to the stand. Nebuchadnezzar, let's just talk about him. He reigned 43 years. From the Roman historian Herodotus, we learn that the wealth and glory of Babylon was so great, it was called the city of the gods. Not just because of the gross idolatry, but because of the abundance of the ambiance and the accoutrements, the the amenities that went with this city. So Babylon, 56 miles of wall. It was a square city, 14 miles on each side. So think 14 miles. It's roughly that distance from here to Santa Clarita. So think of a wall that long on four sides. That's Babylon. Think of a wall 250 feet high. Think of a wall 30 feet thick. Think of a wall with 50 towers that were 450 feet high. Think of a wall with a moat behind it and another wall 75 feet behind the first wall. Think of a city, Euphrates, running through the center of it with a footbridge and a carriage bridge, a wagon bridge. Across that, you create Euphrates one half mile in length. Think of ferries. Think of drawbridges that closed at night. Think of the hanging gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world. They say that Nebuchadnezzar did the hanging gardens, made this wall of beautiful foliage for his wife who came from the mountains, and he wanted to love her and remind her of the greenery that she left. I've been to the Pergamum Museum in Berlin where the Ishtar Gate and the tiles that were the main thoroughfare in the city, they're blue tile. They were three feet in square slabs of tile, sapphire blue, gorgeous, eight massive gates, 100 brass gates. Streets paved with those slabs of tile, a great tower, 53 temples, 180 altars to pagan gods, Ishtar, Marduk, a golden image and a golden table, but the image and the table made of 50,000 pounds of solid gold. Two golden lions on the way to the palace, which was understood even by today's standards to be one of the greatest and most magnificent buildings ever erected on earth. You got the picture? Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Can't interpret that dream. God's man, Daniel, brings the interpretation of the dream. A big tree goes up. 
big tree gets cut down. The purpose of that dream, by way of interpretation, is to communicate to Nebuchadnezzar that your kingdom is like a big tree, but it's coming down. Verse 25, chapter 4. Just want to highlight, punctuate some key words. This is Daniel's interpretation, verse 24. This is the interpretation, O King. This is Daniel talking about vision of the tree that will be cut down. This is the interpretation, O King. This is the decree of the Most High. Most High refers to whom? God. The Most High. El. El El Yon, the highest. Which is a come, come upon my Lord the King that you may be driven away from mankind in your dwelling place, because the dream also included this season, seven seasons of time where this tree and the one who it represented would be driven out into the fields to live as a beast. Verse 25, that you may be driven away from mankind, your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, you be given grass to eat like cattle, be drenched with dew of heaven, In other words, you'll go from the most amazing palace to the field. You're driven. Seven periods of time will pass over you. Look at verse 25 at the end. Until, I circled that in red, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and He bestows it on whomever He wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump, that's the tree that was taken down with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you, here's a key word, after. After you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness. I would put parenthetically, humble yourself. Do it now. And from your iniquities, which reflect your pride, showing mercy to the poor. Here's another fact about Babylon. One of the greatest cities in the world and some of the greatest poverty in the world because all of the assets or the majority of the assets went to the pleasure of the king. So there was gross poverty in a city that knew an abundance of wealth. So when he says show mercy to the poor, it's share the wealth. We're not talking Bernie Sanders, share the wealth. <laughs> talking about... Being gracious. I'm not saying take the wealth, I'm saying share it. Showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Why does Daniel say that? Why do I give you this advice? Because if you don't humble yourself and demonstrate the fruits of humility, if you don't recognize who's God and who's not, if you don't recognize who gives and who provides for you, if you don't treat with humility and grace those with less than you have, you will not enjoy the wealth and the abundance that you have. Verse 28, this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Here's some key words for you. Twelve months later, do you see that? So the warning comes. This What's today? March 1st? Are we there yet? Yeah, so we're in March. Welcome to March. March 1st, the word went out. Humble yourself. No, not to Nebuchadnezzar, to you by name at this church on this Sunday. Humble yourself. Because time's going to go by, and you may be tempted to do what he did. 
ignore the exhortation from the word of God and the prophet of God. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. Verse 30, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built, have built as a royal residence by the might, here are the key words, by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? And while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. Twelve months later. Can I give you a word of encouragement? It may not be 12 months. It may be 18 months. It may be three days. Sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, seven periods of time, and you may live in humiliation for an extended season, he did, until, do you see that word? Until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately. The word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind. Talk about humiliation. He began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Pretty vivid, eh? At the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven because this is the end game. My reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and I praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? At that time, here's key words, my reason returned to me, and my majesty And splendor was restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now, see that word? Life lesson learned. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true. His ways are just. I didn't underline this one. It's bright orange in my Bible. He is able to humble those who walk in what? Pride. Two graphic examples, cherry-picked from the Bible, selected among many potentials. God humbles the proud, and I am no exception, nor are you. If he did it to them... He will do it to you, which is why you need this conviction. Not only does God hate it, it's bad for me to live like that. God is not mocked. And every one of us could stand up and say, hey, I remember the time. I remember the time. I'm thinking of one right now. Seminary, working out like crazy. Had just benched 295 bench press. You know what that is? 295. That's a big number for guys like My goal, 300. I got 295. I said, I'm going to get 300 the next time. I told all my friends I was going to get 300 the next time. 
I might have even puffed out my chest and worn a t-shirt one size too small. (laughs) You know that guy? I was that guy. So that week, seminary softball team, city of Lynchburg, Virginia, played shortstop, ball hit in shallow left field. I'm going to get that. Oh, I got it. I also got the hard, concrete-like surface of a public playing field, separated this shoulder. Do you want to know whether I ever benched 300? Never benched 300. Never recovered enough to accomplish that. I, you know what I learned? God humbles the proud. I can remember that. Do you have a memory? If you won't, you will. Humble yourself. I'm going to give you one more parting statement. It's one thing to be in the fields and to lose privileges, material and financial. It's one thing to lose opportunity. Let me tell you what else you lose. When the Bible says pride defiles, it's a reference to makes you unclean so you cannot minister to the God you serve. A defiled was not able to do the work of a priest. A defiled Christian is disqualified from representing people to God and God to people. There's a greater tragedy that is bound up in this. I got to deal with this is because if I don't deal with this, it's not just material and financial and physical loss. Here's a parting exhortation. It's spiritual loss. Whatever I would have been, I can't enjoy spiritually with God or be used on behalf of God because pride disqualifies me. We'll talk about that next time. I got a third example I want to show you. Another guy, so ladies, you can come back. Your your (laughs) illustrations are over. Father, thank you for the time this morning to wrestle with a reality that is so common to our humanity, self-interest. Self-satisfaction. We take selfies and we satisfy ourselves. We, Lord, are governed by appetites and passions that we are determined to satisfy no matter what it costs or who it costs. We have an overhigh opinion of ourselves. And Lord, one of the truths we will learn is pride by definition is blinding. It's tough to see. So, Lord, as we leave this fellowship today, as we go to church, as we engage our family and friends, would you bring the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the places where we elevate ourselves, where we consider ourselves as more important and not those that we are with, where we consider ourselves sovereign and not who rules over all? Would you point out the things external that we rely on as identity and affirmation, clothes and stuff, places we live? Lord, would you point out the ways that we are proud, that injure you and deny us? Lord, would you bring conviction that will change us? We want to humble ourselves before you have to. To that end, I ask it for us all, including myself. In Jesus' name, amen.